Well, good morning. Grab those pew Bibles, or your Bibles, and we'll be in Mark 10. This morning we come to the end of our Almost Christian series. And that is a title that we borrowed from a book by Kenda Creasy Dean that speaks to the big kind of religious shifts that are happening in our culture, and our churches, uh, and among our young people especially. And I am sure you've noticed we've learned some sobering things the last few weeks, haven't we? Uh, we've learned that children and teens and young adults are leaving the church, and they're leaving in large quantity, and many of them are not returning. We've learned that our consumeristic, individualistic, fast food culture has quietly infiltrated American Christianity. And researchers, they didn't know what to originally call this, and so they they named it moralistic therapeutic deism. That this weak, watered-down, almost Christianity has really permeated everything. It's everywhere. And we've learned that our kids... They don't really have any problem with religion. They don't have any problem with moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, But they also don't care about it at all either. It doesn't interest them very much. It doesn't inform their life. Uh, It doesn't matter to them. And then the clincher, I think, is we learned that uh, statistically, children and teens and young adults will mirror the faith of their parents and other caring adults, making this not a young person's problem but an adult problem. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. And we've thrown out a lot of new terms. We've quoted a lot of authors that are trying to speak to the subject. We've thrown out a bunch of statistics at you. Uh, And it's 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 been a lot for all of us, I know. In the end of her book, in the last chapter, Kenda Dean says this, and I think this is interesting. She says, so at the end of this project, I find that I have arrived at only two conclusions with any confidence. Here is the first. When it comes to vapid Christianity, teenagers are not the problem. The church is the problem. And the second, the church also has the solution. And that's what I want to talk about this morning and end our series with today, talking about how we can be the solution, how we have the solution. And I want to argue a little bit that this is not going to be by making any small plans. This is going to be by making some big plans. Uh, I don't think it will be enough to sort of tweak a few little things here and there in our lives and our faith and then hope for the best. I think we're going to have to make some significant shifts, some change, in order to reclaim robust, consequential, meaningful faith, real historic Christianity for ourselves and then for the kids we're we're all responsible for. Uh, I think there is a solution, but I think it might require a little bit more than we're bargaining for (laughs) much of the time. And our text this morning illustrates this beautifully, and I want to jump in there. Uh, In Mark 10, verses 17 through 22, this is is what what it reads. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So we have a young man. And what we learn about him is he is interested in finding out how he can get eternal life, how he can get to heaven. We learn that he knows the rules, and he's been very, very good, and he's been very nice. Uh, and, and it says that Jesus looks at him, and he loves him, and he knows his heart. And the question he asks of Jesus really illustrates what he thinks of faith, what he think a rela- thinks a relationship with God really boils down to, eternal life. Do I get to go to heaven when I die? But Jesus knows this is not the right question. He knows it's missing the mark. He knows it doesn't really go far enough. And he, he's going to go straight to the heart of what is at issue for this guy. Uh, and that's because the gospel is never just about getting to heaven when we die. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not even about how well we follow the rules. How well we know the rules. How good we've been. Christianity is about recognizing our need for salvation and knowing that out of that need, we are desperate for Jesus Christ, and he is the only one that can make a difference. He's the only one that can get us to where we need to be. It's inviting the Holy Spirit to take control of everything and allowing Jesus to change everything. It's about really submitting ourselves into an entirely different kingdom where we serve an entirely different king. A kingdom that has very different values, often values that are in direct opposition to the kingdom of this culture or this world. Christianity is accepting that invitation of Jesus Christ to come and to die to ourselves and then choose to live for him. Real historic Christianity deep, weighty Christianity, it requires everything, and it changes everything. And for this young man, the thing that happened to trip him up, the thing that kept him from being fully submitted to God, was money, it was possessions. And so Jesus is going to cut right to the chase, and he's going to say, you lack one thing. Why don't you go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Let go of your way of life, your influence, your power, what you know, what you love, and lay it down. And instead, live for God. Instead, follow Jesus. And he basically cuts to this guy's blind spot. And he says, that one thing, that thing, this is going to have to go. Come and follow me. And we read that it breaks this guy's heart. Uh, The message translates verse 22 like this. The mound's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. He goes away sad because Jesus just zeroes right in on his blind spot and says, it's not enough. This thing is keeping you from being fully submitted to me. And because I love you, I'm going to show you what real committed faith actually requires. Everything. Every, everything. 
This was the last thing he expected to hear. Now, I'm not sure what this series has felt like for you. Many of you have come and been very frank and honest about it being pretty hard. Some of you have been very direct. This has been hard, Jamie. I'm not quite sure what to do with this because if I actually act on the things we've been talking about, it will require that I change everything. It will require significant changes to my family, significant changes to the way I think about the world, what I do with my time, my energy, my priorities. Maybe your blind spot's been exposed. Maybe you're like me and you've had to admit, man, moralistic therapeutic deism, this whatever sort of faith, it has. It's somehow gotten into the way I live and the way I parent and the way I view God. I mean, we've been hearing week after week that the only way to really reclaim our faith for us and then for our children is to be, to absolutely put aside this almost Christianity. To lay it down, to relinquish this comfortable, generic, being good and nice enough and going to heaven when we die religion. Things are going to have to change. Big plans are going to have to be made. And maybe this is the last thing you expected to hear. Maybe you're tempted to go away sad because it seems very difficult. I want to encourage you to stay put. I want to encourage you to hang in here. Let's not get overwhelmed. I think we can do this together. Let's not walk away sad. Let's instead just make some big plans and allow this thing to turn the tables over in the places that need to be, that need to be changed. You know, we read that this guy goes away sad, but I wonder what really happens. We don't really know the end of the story. I desperately hope he got halfway home and then realized, what what am I going back to? I hope he was compelled by Jesus to the point to risk and to submit everything because maybe, just maybe, it wasn't too good to be true. Maybe Jesus was calling him to something better. I hope we turned around. We don't know. But I hope that we're going to let the things that we've learned in the last few weeks inspire us to make some changes. I mean, we can't unknow something anyway, can we? I mean, we can willfully sort of ignore what we've learned. But we know that our kids... The kids in this place, the kids in our homes, they desperately need more. They need more. We know we need more, right? So let's make some big plans and and get after these things. Three years ago, Mano sent me on a sabbatical for three months. I'd been doing ministry for six years, and they sent me away to refresh and renew myself. And I planned during that time to avoid all reading material information about teenagers. Um, Not because I don't love them, but because that's like what I eat and breathe every day. I I think teenagers all all the time. So I thought, I'm going to avoid all of that, and I'm just going to try and refresh myself, and I'll bring a stack of some good dead theologians, and that's what I'll do. Um, And I did, and it was great. But what ended up happening was about week three into my sabbatical, I came upon the newly minted... National Survey on Youth and Religion, Uh, and then its first kind of book to address the research study uh, called Soul Searching by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. 
And I couldn't put it down the whole time. I couldn't get away from it. Uh, I was incredibly disheartened by what I was reading. I was really discouraged to read these statistics about adolescents and young adults leaving the church. But at the same time, I had to admit, man, this is absolutely true. I've seen it over the years. I could see it in the changes in the family structure. I could see it. And so, I, you know, I realized, man, this is true for my own life and my own ministry. I see it. But, you know, it didn't make me want to throw in the towel and walk away. It actually made me want to get back to work really bad. Um, I wanted to get back here, and I wanted to make some big plans to deepen youth ministry. I, ca- I couldn't unknow what I now knew. Uh, we came home and, with a team of people, started evaluating everything that was done in this place. I wanted to unsegregate youth ministry from this thing that happens outside and away from most of the congregation and bring everybody back into the larger family of faith. I wanted to build up a large mentor base of caring and committed adults that were willing to live life alongside teenagers. I wanted to come back and figure out how I could get next to parents and help them and equip them and resource them. We decided to basically, I mean, one of the first things we did was we canceled confirmation as it had been done for many years here. Not because there was anything wrong with it, uh, but because when we looked closely, it wasn't working for all the kids that were going through it. There were kids that were definitely learning religious instruction and had some positive experiences being paired with an adult mentor for sure. But by and large, this kind of one-size-fits-all program wasn't cutting it. It wasn't developing strong faith with the majority of students. It wasn't enough. And so we nixed it, and a team of people prayerfully um, took a couple years to really evaluate, what are we going to do here? And we decided we were going to instead turn all of youth ministry into confirmation. Um, We were going to think about how to do everything a little bit different. And it's been very difficult, and it's required a lot for those of us that have been involved in the process. But I believe that it has been, and it will continue to be worth it, because I think it's actually going to give us the best shot we have at developing serious, robust, devoted faith in Jesus Christ among adolescents. I mean, instead of a one-size-fits-all ministry— We're now trying to individualize it. We're trying to take each kid, figure out where they are in their faith journey in their life, pair them with an adult mentor, put programs and classes and things around them that can help them take their very next step in the journey, and then their next step, and then their next step. Obviously, that's messier and much more difficult, but I think it's worth it. Because my kids and your kids and the kids in this place, I think they deserve the absolute best. I think they're counting on us, doing everything we can to present Jesus Christ in his fullness and a life of following him. I think we have the solution. I think you are the solution. And I think there's some big plans to be made, but like I said, I think we can make them. I think the very first thing, if you're wondering where where do we start, what do we do here, I think the very first thing we've got to do is to take a very good look in the mirror and ask, how are we doing in our relationship with Jesus? How are we doing in our devotion to Christ? Does it need some work? Maybe we need to rearrange our priorities and our time and our values so that we are not living a what do I have to do to get to heaven sort of faith. I mean, 
I think we should be real with ourselves and get really honest before Jesus and invite him to point out those blind spots in our lives. And then do whatever we have to do to address them. Whatever we have to do. I mean, he asked this guy to go and sell everything and give it away to the poor and then follow him. Maybe, maybe he'll ask that of you. Maybe not. Maybe he'll ask you instead to deal with your bitterness and resentment and learn how to forgive. Maybe he'll say, that addiction there, yeah, that's going to have to go. Maybe he's going to say, yeah, you've been dragging your heels about taking care of your emotional health. Maybe you do need to finally go see that therapist and deal with your pain. Maybe he's, it's not going to be about anything like that. Maybe he's going to say, yeah, you, you talk a lot about your devotion to me, but man, your prayer life, reading scripture, worshiping me, it's not where it needs to be. We're going to have to address that. I think Jesus is notorious, though, for being very direct when we ask him to be and pointing out those blind spots and saying, this is the thing right now that is keeping you from being fully submitted to me. And I don't think he does that because he's trying to discourage us or because he's mad at us. I think he does it for the same reason he does it for this young man in our story. I think he looks at us and he loves us. I think he knows we're asking the wrong question. (laughs) And instead, out of his great love for us, he says, this thing, this is keeping you from really loving me. And it's also keeping you from letting me love you. So let's take care of that. Maybe you need to seek your own mentor for this. Maybe you need to find somebody that can help you do this and help you wrestle with this. I think sometimes as adults, we think that getting a mentor is something, you know, children do or adolescents do or maybe a young adult does. But I think that can be really, really helpful. I've always had a mentor, and I've always sought one out. But we're going to have to start with ourselves. We're going to have to first look at our relationship with Christ and be like, man, is this in order? Because otherwise we're putting the cart before the horse. There's nowhere else to go until we've got that in order. So maybe, maybe that's where you need to start. If you're already there, then I think the next big plan that we can start talking about is inviting the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us how, to how we can serve someone else. How we can mentor someone else. Maybe you need to get involved in children's and youth ministry. Maybe you need to start attending the Mount and seeking out some young adults to serve. Maybe you need to adopt a young family. Be a spiritual grandma or grandpa or an auntie to somebody. Maybe Jesus just needs you to start having more conversation about God in your home and being bold and vulnerable as you share your faith. I think the Holy Spirit will often invite us to inconvenience our whole life for someone else. Again, not little plans here, big plans. (laughs) We've got to remember that if kids mirror the faith of the adults around them, then I think we're going to have to get around them. Give them something to mirror. Maybe you already have kids in your home, and, and that's where you start. But, but let some folks eavesdrop on your life. Let them see you living for Jesus. Don't worry so much about your experience or your expertise on the subject. Just start talking about who you love and why you love him.
your faith will grow, I promise. And your children and the children in this place will learn about Jesus Christ and what a life looks like when it's fully submitted to him. We have the solution to this mess. We do. Because we have Jesus Christ living inside of us. And we don't have to walk away sad and discouraged because he is absolutely standing there inviting us to follow him into something different. There are big plans to be made, but he is not asking you to go alone. He is inviting you to follow him. He's leading and he's empowering us to do it. Our solution is to follow Jesus Christ, and our kids are counting on us doing it. Are counting on us being willing to do so. There was a time um, that Kenda Dean um, was really struggling as she was part of the original research team for this national survey on youth and religion. And, and she's been in youth ministry for over 30 years. And she was feeling pretty discouraged as the research was piling up. <clears throat> and it was looking pretty bad. And, and she decided she was going to send an email out to various pastors, youth pastors, parents, teachers, adults that had inv- been involved in the research. And she just wanted to ask them one question. How are you hanging on to hope in light of what you're finding? What keeps you hopeful, even though we see moralistic therapeutic deism? It's, it's everywhere. It's in everything. How are you staying hopeful? And she got a lot of responses many of them very good, but one of them resonated with me deeply, and it's one that I've made my own, and it's one that I've come back to again and again. And this is what I would answer her as she asked me. How, how, why? Why are you hanging on to hope? How do you hang on to hope, even though it looks pretty bad? I don't lose hope because while the research can give me the numbers, I know the names of kids who have found faith and who have found faith on my watch. I see their faces. I see Matt, and I see Kaylee, and I see Greg, and I see Sarah. I see Bryn, and Anna, and Sammy, and Kyle, and Madison, and Brianna. I see Blake, and my Chase. They found faith on my watch. And so they require that I hang in there. They require that I don't give up hope. We don't walk away sad. We don't get discouraged because it's going to be hard. Because they are desperately counting on us. The kids in this place are counting on you to do whatever it takes to go all the way with Christ. Whatever it takes to be fully and deeply Christian. And we do it for them, and we do it for us. Amen. Amen.